this is Black Coffee, the podcast one. We are in pause, right in New Center, but uh, more so in the Samson Foundation House with uh, the, the, sur- the, the surname of the good Reverend Samson. <laughs> Frida Samson, how are you? I am wonderful. How are you, Tyler? Yes, yes. Yeah. You are a, a rookie to the podcast game. Brand new. And, um, <laughs> and we welcome you with uh, open arms as this is Black Coffee, the podcast. We're going to talk a lot about Detroit Black history and Black history in general. Uh, we have a very special guest to start this off for Detroit is Different, um, someone that is not new to the podcast game in a lot of conversations. Uh, we intersect in many ways and actually through... Um, I, I would call them like the godfathers of Detroit podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> They're the Corleone family of it and uh, IT and the D. But Calvin Moore, Calvin Moore, 7.2 tours and so much more. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. And and that uh, that reference to uh, to the godfather of Bob and Dave with the IT and the D, that's not too far from the truth. They have taken out a few lesser podcast networks. So uh, watch your back. Yes, they, they definitely. <laughs> when, when I told uh, Dave that I wanted to do this, he was like, "You should just." And I'm like, "No, nah, man, but I want to be in and about and around." But I love those guys. I've learned so much from them, um, and it, it's definitely cool to uh, be kicking that off and kicking this off. You should be uh, like, "This is the spirit. first and last episode," because Bob and Dave got to you immediately after. <laughs> no, not yet. No, not yet. No, it's cool. It's cool. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so. With this being said, we're uh, Black Coffee. It's an open conversation about Detroit's black history, as I think often um, people talk about black history and leave out a lot of what's happened in Detroit. And Detroit plays a hell of a role, especially when you think about uh, the 20th and 19th century, as Detroit provided a lot of opportunity for black folks that they could not get any other place. Um, You think of the direct connection to the Underground Railroad. Is this was the last stop? And you also think of the opportunities for jobs that existed in Detroit. Uh, Detroit was one of the places that many people, uh, Paul Robeson, Martin Luther King, uh, Ida B. Wells. Um, let's see, the, the list can go on and on. And every performer will come often because there were mo- there was a lot of money in Detroit where uh, black people would, would send money south to get more people or just send money south to help out with everything. Uh, the Montgomery bus boycott that uh, people talk about often uh, was uh, paid for a lot through Detroit helping those people that were carpooled because even though it was a bus boycott, people still had to go to school, go to work, hang out, and do different things. And everybody was like, I'm not about to use up my car and use my gas. <laughs> so a lot of that gas was uh, paid for by people in Detroit. Uh, from raising offerings uh, in churches, a lot of church organizations here uh, actually not that. Was far. it was it the love offering or the, the third or fourth offering that would happen on a hey, Sunday morning? Man. At least the second. All right, at yes. least the second. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, hey. unless but, it was first Sunday, then it wasn't. True story. Yeah. Fourth <laughs> offering. What is going on? But 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 people had it. Then, you yeah. know what I'm saying? People had it to give. You you couldn't raise that fourth offering. And so <laughs> <laughs> It was, it was it's like one and done. Fish, fish fries. That's, that's fish about fry. it. That isn't potlucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, Detroit plays a unique role in black history, uh, American black history. And with that, we're going to kick this whole thing off to um, Calvin. Uh, your, 
your family's history uh, here in and around. Uh, what were some of the stories that uh, that you were here growing up about some of the business people, some of the faith leaders, some of the uh, artists uh, of Detroit that you remember as a child that it was like, wow, that's unique. I didn't Interestingly enough, that. most of my stuff comes from studying, not necessarily hearing in my family because my dad was military. Mm-hmm. So I'm not from here originally. Mm-hmm. While I love this city, it's my favorite city. I know the most about it historically um, because my background is, is, is in history, as you know. Uh, mm-hmm. But for the listeners, you know, my background's in history. <laughs> um, so a lot of it was just discovering uh, the the present day stuff that I moved into in 1994 when we first got here to Detroit. Uh, and then also having conversations with people here in Detroit. I, like, I remember my first job ever. I was working at the, the AMC Wood 6 movie theater in Grosse Point Woods, Michigan. It was a six screen movie theater. And I worked a concession stand, you know, get out of school, go straight to work, go home, do my homework. Well, there's one night I'm working. It's a slow night. It's a Thursday. And just working concession stand, Put the popcorn in the bag, hand it to every customer. Enjoy your movie. You too. I'm not seeing the movie. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember one night, this one lady came in, and she's quiet. She's short. Um, she's the last customer pretty much of the night. I hand her her bag of popcorn. Enjoy your movie. Thanks so much. And she turns to walk away. And my manager's standing there. And he's just his jaw has just dropped open. And I'm like, what? Was my fly down? Are you okay? He says, do you know who that was? I was like, no. He's like, Calvin, that was Anita Baker. Isn't Anita Baker? And I was like, who? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man. It was 1994. I didn't care. Like, oh, that was man. my parents' generation at that point. Oh, right? so, yeah, that's now, tough. Now I, I mean, she wasn't a fan. I think she was glad to know that someone didn't know her. Uh, but I was a teenager, just like my daughter doesn't know who. Like, the kid last night at the Super Bowl. So the Super Bowl just happened, and Justin Timberlake ran out into the crowd, mm-hmm. and the kid was. You could tell the kid next to him was like Googling who is Justin Timberlake. <laughs> yeah, yes. so you know, you're just removed from, from that. But but uh, I have learned a lot of, uh, of Detroit's history over the years, especially, you know, the being the last stop on the Underground Railroad because of our proximity to Canada. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know that uh, when people were escaping from slavery, or we don't think about it, we think about the world in terms of cars. Oh, you know, they're coming up here from Georgia. Oh, Georgia, that's a 12-hour drive. Not so bad, right? Well, they were coming by foot and at night. Mm-hmm. You know, because they couldn't travel during the day; otherwise, they would, you know, mm-hmm. they would be spotted easily. So, finding out that history, and you could, of course, walk all the way to New York. So, we say we were the last stop on the Underground Railroad. Technically, that's true if you wanted to get to Canada faster. You could go all the way to New York, but do you want to walk through the cold and the snow and things like that? Not that there was no cold here. So, mm-hmm. last stop on the Underground Railroad because of how close we were to Canada. That's why so many people came here because of the fugitive slave laws, and the fugitive slave laws allowed bounty hunters to come up here from the south mm-hmm. to the north to retrieve runaway property, right? But they could only go as far as the American border. They couldn't legally go to Canada, which is why we had so many African-American people come here. But then, of course, the influx happened with the auto industry, that mm-hmm. you know, that great northern migration. Uh, this is why, like, anytime you meet somebody uh, in, say, you know, you know, specifically Atlanta, but, you know, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana— uh, you could talk to anybody down there and they will know someone or be related to somebody in Detroit because of that great northern migration to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what ended up bringing my family back here. My dad got out of the military, could not find a job in North Carolina where we lived at the time, found a, a job headhunter. That guy happened to find him a job up here in Detroit, which interestingly enough was where my dad had been born and raised. Hmm. 
And so when we moved up here in 94, it was interesting. My dad had grown up downriver, River Rouge area. Uh, so he, he had lots of stories, but he, he remembered just how segregated and how dangerous things were when he left. Mm-hmm. So when we moved back, he moved us into Gross Point. And we were the second African-American family ever to move into Gross Point in 1994. Yeah, Gross Point has a uh, classic history yeah. of uh, exclusionary uh, schooling, exclusionary stores, exclusionary uh, policing, uh, well, and all-out bias uh, practices when we think about the segregation that still is very present right. in this region mm-hmm. today. Absolutely. Right. Um, we, we think of places like, yeah, Gross Point. Uh, you think of places definitely Dearborn. Uh, and so much that has added to some of the, I guess, strength, the tenacity, uh, these unique stories, and then this intersecting uh, challenge of creativity amongst us as as black betrayers, because we're relying on one another right. in such close knit spaces. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's, I think it's interesting to, to see um, the things that stay with us to this day, whether it's a, a street name, like I could tell you all about all the Detroit street names and who they're named after. And all Those people probably just went to work every day, did their thing, and then hundreds of years later, we have streets named after them that are just a street to us. But um, because of their impact, they're still impacting us, mm-hmm. right? And so I look at things, uh, so the, the negative things, by design, entire neighborhoods were created to segregate white workers from black workers in, in Henry Ford's auto plants, right? Mm-hmm. And to this day, some of those lines still exist. Uh, the Home Rule Act of 1909, which made it uh, impossible for Detroit to uh, to annex smaller communities. So like New York, when they were expanding, they come across a small town and municipality and say, you're now New York City. And they just ha- became New York City because of eminent domain. You couldn't do that here. Well, that created, uh, that allowed during white flight uh, after the riots of 1967, although people started moving out in 1950. Right. Uh, but because of that, you had, by design, uh, city ordinances that were created and city lines that were drawn up that would keep black people and white people mm-hmm. separated uh, from each other to this day. Now, at this point, you do have a lot of uh, the grandchildren of some of those people, but they're just living in areas, and they have no idea how those areas were created. So some of them don't understand until you educate them. Uh, and, and rightly so, everybody needs to be educated on these kinds of things. But it's interesting to see Warren, Michigan now. Okay, Warren is what it was. It was a farm town, and people don't know how it was created because of these laws and these lines that were drawn that kept white people separated from black people, and we still see all of this today. So Detroit is the largest African-American city in the United States by population, but it's also the most segregated city in the United States by by, by Well, race. region, this region is uh, very grossly bad. And Frida, you have a lot of extensive yeah. history on this and knowledge from the round table and a lot of your work with uh, organizations and corporations that at least I see on paper. Mm-hmm. And, and then some of the work they may be trying to do, but you're breaking the chains of something that has been so present mm-hmm. in this region for so long. So speak a little bit about uh, the exclusion that has existed for such a long time here in and around Detroit. Yeah. Well, you know, one of my uh, questions, whenever we have this conversation in any kind of public sphere, and quite often even in private conversations, I ask the question, what neighborhood do you live in uh-huh. first? And then my second question is, do you know why you live in that neighborhood? Do you know how you came to that neighborhood? Mm-hmm. 
And what is the makeup of that neighborhood? Is it homogenous? Does everybody look like you? Same economic level, same kind of academic achievements, or is it diverse in other ways? And it's always interesting, Calvin, because 99% of the time when I ask that question, people have not ever thought about it. Mm-hmm. You know, they just live where they live. Right. Right. I have and, a roof over my head. Right, and, and exactly. Right. You know, I'm here because this is where my parents were. Okay, well, let's scratch that a little deeper. Uh, and so when we really begin to unpack the profound impact that segregation has had on this nation, but certainly in this region, it is, um, it is it, it does not get lost on me who why the wealth divide is as profound as it is among other academic divide, you know, access to opportunities, the divide goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. My question for you is growing up in the points or living in the points, mm-hmm. being a second black family, how was that experience for you personally? And did you understand at the time what the point system was? I had no idea. I mean, like, like most teenagers, um, I'll say many teenagers because there are a lot of a lot more aware teenagers nowadays. Uh, the internet is a hell of a drug, right? <laughs> so uh, access to information can be very helpful. But uh, I think when I moved in, I was like a lot of teenagers, very myopic. I just paid attention to what was going on with with me and my friends. Worked in the movie theater every single weekend. Me and my buddies would go see free movies. That's all we really cared about, and whether girls liked me or not. Uh, now. That doesn't mean that I was not fully, I mean, that, that I wasn't paying attention in other ways. So when we moved in, where our house was, we were on a street called Linville. And my house was on a street that St. John Hospital was trying to buy. So St. John Hospital is a trauma one hospital here in, in the city of Detroit, for those of you listening. But um, they wanted to buy up our street and turn it into an emergency route. So when we moved in, they had bought the house on our corner. The, the house that we were renting. So our checks went to St. John Hospital. Mm-hmm. But I guess the people in on that street worked very, very hard to kind of shut down that deal, but St. John still just owned this one house. Mm-hmm. So that, that deal got shut down, and so where my house was was the first house inside Gross Point. And then directly across the street was the parking garage for St. John Hospital, which was Detroit. Right. And then across the street from us, all the houses were Gross Point, but their garages were Harper Woods. So we were right on the edge where three different cities uh, came together. I w- was aware that I was black primarily through the fact that uh, I was raised black Pentecostal, and that's a super black church. Right? <laughs> that's as black as it comes. Um, super black. <laughs> and uh, I mean, Sunday was a wrap, right? You know, like my friends who were Baptist and Catholic, they got out of church at a, at a normal time. My day was uh, dedicated to Christ all day long. But, uh, <laughs> Three o'clock, come on! Uh, but uh, I do recall the first time that I was called the N-word was in Gross Point. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't aware of the point system, but I was aware, I was made painfully aware of uh, point thinking mm-hmm. at that point. Okay. Uh, so, so two episodes. The first time I was called uh, the N-word, I was playing basketball with my best friend, Chris. And Chris was a white kid, and we always joked that because I was good at soccer and he was good at basketball, our roles, our racial roles were reversed. I was mm-hmm. supposed to be able to dunk on him. I just was not, I'm not good at basketball to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one day we were playing a game of 21 and somehow I beat him. He always beat me. And this is the first time I ever beat him. And the 
the ball comes down through the net, and he just yells the N-word. Wow. Mm-hmm. And turns around and goes, oh, I call all my friends that. And I was like, Chris, we have all the same friends. I never heard you say that. Because I'm going to go point most of our friends. Most of our friends are white as well. And so that ended our friendship. Mm. On the spot or did? Pretty much on the spot. Okay. Uh, and, and from there forward, I always wondered what people thought of me. Like, did, were you smiling in my face and then quietly thinking, you wish you could call me boy or wish you could call me the N-word? Uh, but mm-hmm. I think I became more aware of the segregation of things when I was working at AMC. This little kid comes up to me, very precocious, doesn't know any better. I think he was he was at least six or seven. And he came up to me and he just started pulling on my arm and he goes, excuse me, sir, can you can you tell me why your skin's so dark like that? Mm. And his parents came up behind him like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. We, we have some things to teach him. Like, yeah, he's six. He's six and he's never seen a black person. Wow. Uh, and so that kind of opened my eyes to just how segregated things were. And that started leading to this. My mom's always been a family historian. We have crates, she has crates and crates and crates of old uh, microfiche. If you remember going to the library and microfiche, now everything's online. But she did all of our family history. So we have our family history hmm. further back than Alex Haley was able to get. Oh, wow. So, wow. Uh, but her love of history and these, um, these events that were taking place that were making me a little more aware made me start to research, you know, how was, how did this city come to be uh, the way that it was? And that's when I became more aware of how Detroit's came to be and how Detroit came to be and the Montgomery GI Bill that was denied to certain people and the redlining and all those kinds of things. So yeah, I'm more aware now, but back then I was, I was oblivious, slightly, slightly aware through certain incidents, but um, overall, uh, just your typical teenager, but not completely blind, if that makes any sense. Have you, have you uh, in the work that you do, have you noticed uh, a significant change in terms of either the thinking and believing of Gross Point in relationship to Detroit and, and other communities, well, or is it about the same? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in Gross Point anymore. Uh, I avoid it like the plague. Um, Why? I, I mean, pe- people to this day still say, don't if you're black, do not drive on Jefferson Avenue along the water mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. The river, once it becomes Riverside Drive just don't do it because mm-hmm. you'll get it driving while black um, so what's going on in Gross Point primarily to me is uh, read through stories that I see in the news the race barns uh, in, uh, in Gross Point Park they put these uh, kind of silos up these barns that blocked off the street from Detroit into Gross Point Park mm-hmm. and this was all over the news and the mayor had the mayor of Detroit had to talk to the mayor of Gross Point Park and Try to figure that all out. Uh, they turned it into this weird roundabout, so you can you can get out, but you can't get in. Mm-hmm. So they opened up the street, but they didn't open up the street. So there's still kind of this idea of an us versus them mentality uh, that is physically present. There are mm-hmm. physical manifestations of the separation. I think for people who live in Gross Point, who will tell you, "I love the city. It's great. The new downtown is for them." They're going to go to downtown, midtown, maybe a little bit up here in New Center. Uh, but overall, you know, if you ask the question, oh, yeah, cool, you really love Detroit? Yeah, would you put your kid in any of the schools? Mm-mm, no. What? <laughs> That's crazy. So I don't think that there's a all-in mentality mm-hmm. about Detroit. Even though people understand so goes the city, so goes the region, there's still a very 
I'm going to keep my kids in the Grosse Point school system. I'm going to keep my kids safe and segregated for as long as possible. My wife and I will go down to Grosse Point. Well, I mean, we'll go down to Detroit for, we might take our kids down if it's a sporting event, but the things that we love, we're going to do ourselves because we still feel it's not quite safe for our kids. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the mentality that's still, I've seen prevalent. Hmm. Yeah. And, and when we talk about just sporting events themselves and what they represent is, uh, I went to Northwestern High School, uh, right on what Olympia Field was. Uh, and when we think about uh, the, the history of that and uh, the my neighborhood that was once a Jewish neighborhood mm-hmm. is now definitely a black neighborhood. Um, and, and what was represented, Freedy, you can speak a little bit to this just because of the work that your father did. You were looking at some of this uh, in this transition that was happening as different things like what happened to Olympia Field and Olympia Park and um, how that transitioned into less and less resources because that's the other side of this. As uh, as black people uh, begin to gather access to resources that were at one, one point in time exclusively controlled uh, and used by or controlled and utilized by white people, the uh, the, the, the support from the federal, state, and local governments ceased to exist. So being that your father was doing work, um, Reverend Sampson was doing a lot of work in this community and just throughout all of Detroit, but especially Detroit's West Side. What was that like um, looking at that, uh, especially like when we're looking at the cusp of a lot of black uh, entrepreneurship, black leadership in the 80s, but looking to lead with less resources. Yeah, you know, dad was, and, and for those who may not know, my father was Reverend Dr. Frederick Sampson. Uh, when he was with us, he was a pastor of Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church. At that point, uh, West Side Church for sure on the corner of Beachwood and Tyreman. So definitely a West Sider mm-hmm. church, and West Sider community. Mm-hmm. And um, when we came to Detroit, because I'm not from Detroit, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. And so when we came to Detroit, um, I was still just a, a little girl, uh, nine or 10 years old. Dad came into the city really with guns blazing, fresh out of a, a really kind of a robust civil rights movement ministry in Louisville, Kentucky, taking leadership in a lot of ways. So he came in pretty much on fire. And, but by the mm-hmm. time we got here, you know, the resources had honestly had already started leaving. Mm-hmm. Had certainly started leaving because we saw resources leave when we saw white people leave. Right. Right? What year did he get here? He got here in 72. 72, okay, yeah, absolutely. Right, so, right, resources were, were for the most part, already gone, but there was some commerce still existing in on the west side at that time, not a lot. And mm-hmm. so for him, part of his activism is making sure that in every way the church had a commitment to the entrepreneurs, African-American entrepreneurs that were in the community and really supporting African-American business in, in the most rich way that that we could but in addition trying to garner um, more resource resources into the neighborhood more resources into the city which as you know was kind of an uphill climb right uh, people had already certainly started writing us off and then Coleman Young came into into the mirror position and I don't remember the year exactly but dad was certainly a colleague of him and so with the tensions that arose, um, it really made for dad to take the resources internally in the church 
and try to help and support them to kind of to 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 garner more opportunities for the community and for the neighborhood. Uh, so you know we had members like um, Judge Damon Keith and, and Elliot Hall and and some of these folks that had connections to larger uh, institutions like Ford Motor Company and how we could, and, and this is historical in some ways, with how pastors are able to negotiate opportunities for their parishioners right. to, to be in a more successful space economically. Uh, so he he did that, and and, I, and Carol, you're from the same neighborhood, mm -hmm. right? So Russell Woods neighborhood, uh, mm -hmm. which was a Jewish neighborhood, mm -hmm. and um, in that evolution, which is certainly not unique to Russell Woods, it transitioned from Jewish to black. Mm -hmm. I did a tour over there not too uh, not too long ago with a Jewish family that was driving. They were doing a family reunion. We drove right through there, and they were pointing out the houses that they used to live in. Is that right? It was really fascinating. Wow. Really I'd fascinating. love to know more about uh, the tour that you're doing there because it's such a rich neighborhood mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of history, and uh, we just need to get a lot more play uh, around what our mm -hmm. contribution was. But... Um, Living in that neighborhood and and connecting to the West Siders, you know, you he he worked with city, he worked with the state, and he did uh, certainly as much as he could do to to build capacity and to build opportunity. And I think that's why when I had an opportunity to look at working for somebody else or working as an entrepreneur, working as an entrepreneur made more sense. Even though I'm a first generation entrepreneur in that sense in my family, um, what it showed me was that if we want jobs, we need to be active in creating mm -hmm. those jobs. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it had a personal impact on me, and I think that as we think about black pastors in particular in the city of Detroit and their role in the city, how do you, uh, Calvin, uh, certainly come from the Pentecostal experience, mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you extrapolate on what you see the impact and value of black pastors in the community today, perhaps versus in the fifties or sixties. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess as a kid, I saw no value. I just wanted to get out of church on Sunday. Um, <laughs> but as I grew older, obviously, uh, certain. Okay, so what, what your father walked into, I think, was kind of the tail end of what kind of started in the fifties. Mm -hmm. Is uh, you know, as manufacturing starts moving out of the United States beginning in nineteen fifty, and the riots of sixty seven didn't really help anything here in Detroit either. So all those resources are moving out. And so you have these black pastors who are, uh, in a sense, uh, obviously they're leaders, not a sense, uh, reality, they're leaders within the community. Mm -hmm. And uh, the role of pastor all of a sudden took on not just spiritual leader, spiritual mentor, but uh, it, it became a political position. And I don't mean like political infighting and pastors trying to make sure that they're the best big church. I mean, people who are going uh, into the corridors of power and saying, I've got 30,000 parishioners. They live in these neighborhoods. These are their demand, or these are, their, these are their needs, and maybe in some time, these are the demands. And you are our elected official, right? Uh, and a pastor, in a way, I guess, because a pastor is always speaking, they're, they're great orators and whatnot, right? And so they're supposed to inspire, to, inspire you to these higher, higher ideals. Because of that, I think that they had uh, the ability to go before your Ivy League educated political, you know, person in a political position or whatever. Uh, so I think in a sense, pastors at that time took on that role uh, necessarily. I think pastors today still have that role, uh, especially in Detroit. 
I brought this up uh, a few weeks ago when we were on a panel uh, at a church in Detroit. I think the, the issue that pastors in Detroit are facing now is one, dwindling dwindling con- congregations. So people are starting to age out. At one point, the church was the foundation of the black community. Uh, and now you have a, a young generation that does not grant the authority to the church uh, as much as the generations previous to them. Now that's an overarching thing that's happening in America overall. Uh, and it's happened slower in black churches than it has happened in white churches. Um, which is why you'll very rarely meet black atheists. You very rarely find that. You'll find a lot of white atheists. All the writers of atheist books are all white guys. None of them are black people. Uh, that's not to say they're not out there. But it's just been a slower trek into the black uh, psyche about those kinds of questions and things. And so because of this slow erosion of the authority of the church in America in general, uh, even though it's been slower in the African-American church, you're now starting to see the effects of that. Uh, I no longer see the pastor as authoritative. And if I no longer see the pastor or the church as authoritative, uh, then politicians are not going to see the church or the pastor as authoritative. So now, now politicians can easily dismiss your neighborhood pastors. Whereas back in the day, even your neighborhood pastor could get the, the, the ear of the mayor. Now only your larger church pastors, I think, uh, can get the ear of the politicians. So your Second Ebenezer Baptist Church, your Word of Faith, so those guys, they can get some stuff done still, but your smaller neighborhood pastors uh, don't have that. And, uh, they, have to go, they have to go to the bigger pastors now mm-hmm. to, to do that. I think uh, also when we think about <clears throat> 50s and 60s, but I'm going to go as far as to say the 70s as well, but uh, 50s and 60s, you naturally have to talk about the Shrine of the Black Madonna and what it represented in New Bethel Baptist Church. So uh, what C.L. Franklin uh, carried uh, to Detroit uh, with not just the talent of his daughter, which the world recognizes, but what he carried just in uh, in forward thinking in his relationships with uh, with Dr. King, actually as being one of the first people to stand up and stand behind Dr. King, as many pastors did not support Dr. King at the time, right? In retrospect, a lot of organizations mm-hmm. like the UAW and the NAACP say that, yeah, we support Dr. King, and they put up the Dr. King posters and things like this, but a lot of people black and white pastors did mm-hmm. not support Dr. King, Dr. King and black organizations did not support him. C.L. Franklin stood with him. Uh, New Bethel Baptist Church was a place and a space that stood as uh, always open doors to convene, to meet uh, in the Shrine of the Black Madonna when we think about the rebellion in 67. Uh, Reverend Clegg played a role in bringing a, an understanding. He was one of the first people that was re- sought after and reached out to uh, in by then uh, Governor Governor Romney, uh, by uh, the Mayor Kavanaugh, and also by the President to see what was happening and how it was happening. Uh, Reverend Clegg's uh, legacy in the Shrine of the Black Madonna with many of his lieutenants and a lot of that work when we think about that legacy that led to Mayor Kilpatrick becoming Mayor Kilpatrick. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carolyn Cheeks Kilpatrick becoming a congresswoman. Uh, right now, Warren Evans, that is the county commissioner mm-hmm. of Wayne County. That's all from the family of the Shrine of the Black Madonna and those thoughts and that thought process of, uh, you know, what a lot of people just remember as uh, young young kids wearing red, black, and green um, 
red, black, and green get-ups and sitting on the corner doing collections throughout many different communities. Uh, the bookstore uh, that the Shrine of the Black Madonna represented, the, the uh, Welcome Center that uh, was apartments and, and places for people to live, thinking in hospitals, expanding to Atlanta. Like this type of forward thinking for uh, independent black thought, uh, African-centered education, African-centered Christianity at a time when the whole concept of uh, how we look at the Bible is uh, looked at from a patriarchal Western lens. Uh, this is all so in line with what the Shrine of the Black Madonna represented. So I, I would think that along with, you know, the pastor playing a different roles as our community was more close-knit because we were forced mm -hmm. through segregation to live next to one another, mm -hmm. pastors and a lot of their and a lot of their organizing uh, stood as more progressive for what they stood for. Your father mm -hmm. uh, alone, when I think of uh, many of the times I remember what your father was preaching about and talking to had a whole lot more to do with the consciousness of how people looked at voting, mm -hmm. uh, how people looked at uh, how to spend their money, how people looked at how to build their families, and not a whole lot of sermons necessarily directly related to sermons from a scripture as and, much and as that's that's an interesting thing because that's um that's I mean everything you're talking about here is the thing it's this is the exact thing that. Uh, I, I could get in trouble for saying this. This is the kind of stuff that scares uh, white evangelicals because the church, the, the, the Shrine of the Black Madonna uh, in, in Detroit is decidedly black liberation theology. Yeah, right? yeah. And I mean, I'm in a program right now and my, I've got two master's degrees. I have an undergrad degree and two master's degrees in religion as well. Mm -hmm. And so they're done predominantly at white evangelical schools and I remember I was out in California with one of my classmates uh, not too long ago because the school I'm at is in California, so I travel out there uh, two weeks out of the year. The rest of it's online. Uh, but we're sitting down to eat at In-N-Out because when you're in, on the West Coast, you got to go to In-N-Out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we got five guys. They got In-N-Out. Okay. Uh, five guys is way better. But either way, people will fight you on that. But I remember her sitting me down going, what do you think about black liberation theology? And I could tell by the way she was asking me. She, she had some deep she thoughts had and thought mis she, had, right. she had some right. misgivings she was about it. Up, yeah. it, was, uh, um, it was a pretense to that right. question. And I helped her understand exactly what black liberation theology is, because uh, these people have no problem with you know South American liberation theology, which is where it comes from, uh, because James Cone was influenced by Gutierrez, uh, another theologian who was in South America. And so now you've got James Cone, who's the father of black liberation theology in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. So anybody who is preaching black liberation theology in a church anywhere in the United States, if not the world, is heavily influenced by James Cone. Mm -hmm. uh, the Cross and the Lynching Tree is his most recent book, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which is a fantastic book. Everybody should pick it up and read it. But this idea that God, whether you believe in God or not, black liberation theology teaches that God sides with the oppressed, mm -hmm. which means you're going to get more sermons. If, if you do get a sermon that's based on scripture, it's going to extrapolate here is someone who's being victimized, and here is how God liberates them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I do find that even, uh, so a few moments ago I said, you know, the church has lost its authority, and so not as many churches have a voice. What I will say is because of the types of sermons uh, and teaching that come out uh, in, in communities that come out of black liberation theology and black liberation uh, congregations, 
I think that they are unique. Those kind of congregations, should they get the ear of power, are uniquely qualified and uniquely prepared to uh, to explain and get across the ideas of what are our needs, you know, what mm-hmm. do I want, what what will it take to make a better world, how do we how do we build uh, people who take uh, economic control of their own lives, mm-hmm. how do we name the problems that exist, and how do we overcome those problems? This is the exact thing. Uh, that I think we need as a black community. It's also this th- the thing that scares the, sh- the shit out. Can I say shit? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Scares the shit out of people, uh, which is why Barack Obama, when he was running for president in 2008, had to disavow his black liberation pastor, Jeremiah, Jeremiah Wright. White evangelicals have no idea what to do with that, right? And that's, so when we talk about white evangelicals, let's take you into Gross Point, right? There's a particular idea there that is part and parcel to that kind of thinking. So when you bump up against black liberation theology, which is taught in a lot of churches in Detroit, right, that's right. Um, that also brings you at a loggerhead. So even yeah, though religion yeah. is kind of going the way of the dinosaur for a lot of people in, in the modern era, uh, I still think you have very, very religious ideas that are in conflict uh, that keep people very, very suspicious of one another or even mm-hmm. separated. I, I actually have a couple of follow-up questions mm-hmm. with that. My... My sense has always been, uh, Calvin, that black liberation theology is preached in some capacity or another in all black churches in some capacity or another, right? It's, it'd be certainly when you talk about how scripture is interpreted, you need to speak to the audience that you have. Right. And, and, and I think in that regard, um, when you, when you um, listen to a Jeremiah Wright as an example, and you certainly know what happened on that national mm-hmm. stage, uh, there was some, that was an internal conversation between pastor and people, and there was some coding, because as black people, we have, we are particularly skilled mm-hmm. in, in coding, and, um, but there was also some truth that was applicable to the individuals in that room. Correct. Right? And when it got extrapolated from that space and then uh, opened for interpretation from a lens of individuals that had no idea what that experience and that expression was. Mm-hmm. It was now putting um, on judgment this whole notion of, of black liberation theology. Mm-hmm. But it was also in that in the space of preachers speaking truth to power, if you will, because- Absolutely. Uh, those sitting in the congregation had to have some kind of capacity to be able to make it from that Sunday to the next Sunday. Mm-hmm. So I needed to be lifted up. I didn't need to be broken down. I needed to know that my pain and my and my sorrow was going to have some kind of value at some point and not here in heaven. Um, when we look at the power and the role, that's when we look at the power and the role of those pastors, um, and and what they were able to do, who in your in in a certain time in in our history, and tell and um, Kari and I were talking about this now. Uh, even though you're not from here, who would you see as the leaders, if you dare, uh, are willing to say specific names uh, that help shape the moral compass of our community? Because we still don't have access to. A lot of the things we may have more of a, of a connection to businesses, more of a connection to social clubs, and more of a connection to um, experiences that did not exist in the fifties and sixties in the same way. But at the end of the day, the church is still kind of the central space. I would dare put out 
uh, for most black folk. But what we seem to be grappling with is who has that moral voice, that, that courageous capacity to speak that truth to power today? Oh, today? Ooh, oh my gosh. I don't. I don't know if that person exists. I think there are, um, and I think uh, I may have brought this up a few weeks ago when I was with you guys. Um, the exact issue with uh, things like the Black Lives Matter movement, right? You know, we're we're used to we're used to our leaders being shot and killed when we say stuff. Whether it's Malcolm, whether it's Martin, whether it's Megar Evers, our people get shot, right? Mm -hmm. So now, after you, you had the Tea Party movement, uh, and the, they, they did the whole decentralized power, because they were all upset about all this power and, and the banks ripping people off. Well, the Black Lives Matter movement took the same tack, but for a different reason. They wanted decentralized power because they were trying to protect leaders. So if you have a leader who's out in front, the leader out in front gets shot. There was a reason Barack Obama had more threats than any other president in American history. Right? Before, uh, he was the... He, was, he had more threats than any other president in American history, and he was also the first candidate to get um, Secret Service protection the fastest yeah. out of people who ran. When I, uh, when I so, saw him at an economic club, uh, when he spoke in Detroit, mm -hmm. shook his hand, but that was early on mm -hmm. in the election. Uh, he definitely was uh, Secret Service. Yeah, you never, you never shook his hand after that, right? <laughs> that, was, that was it. Um, so I don't know that I could point to, I, I don't think we have one. I, and I, I know that there are people who are doing good work and, you know, if you're like, Hey, you know, you did really good work. Well, you know, it's a whole team of people. I think you're going to get those kinds of answers, but I don't know that there's any particular one leader that people are looking to either as a black community as a whole or a black community in Detroit specifically. It could be that I also don't know who some of them are. I, like I, I hear names, but I don't know that they're... I, I don't think there was anybody who, if you mentioned Martin Luther King, said mm -hmm. who? Mm -hmm. Like, people knew who it was. So I don't know if there's a name that people will go, yeah, we're all we're all on board. I, we know who that person is. I think uh, in, in response to that same question, it's, it's so tough now. Um, I, so I, 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 would, I agree with you. Like, there are certain initiatives being taken in, in the work that it takes as... Um, at one point in time, you were you were talking about like uh, right now we've made strides in progress, but in those strides in progress, it's also like some of the things that we're we're battling. Uh, like the flip side to uh, white supremacy is uh, we still struggle with black inferiority because the 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 same society that breeds that builds that you know that same thought process in us. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of internal. Viewpoints that we need to look at and, and analyze within ourselves, and I think that like it's it may not be a hundred percent leader, but it may be a person making an act. It may be an an initiative. It could be a program. It could be a presentation. You know, Calvin is in that zone with some of the things he's saying right now. Where it's like, man, I'm gonna have to go back and uh, read something. So he's, <laughs> he's leading me right there. Some of the things you said just about your father, and I'm always in awe of some of the work your father has done, but. In that you you've opened up people to uh, new thought processes and thinking, so it, it is in the church at times, and sometimes it's on the corner. Uh, when you talk about uh, leaders that were murdered, 
and Tupac Shakur and his catalog mm-hmm. for me as a hip hop artist meant so much to me. But on the flip side of it, this is what the the beauty of it, and it's also the tragedy of it. My interpretation of some of Tupac's lyrics as a child uh, was very destructive as well. So it, it was productive and destructive. That like, man, this same guy that presented this concept of me of who Matulu Shakur is. You know, leading me like, man, Asada Shakur is his auntie. Like, who's this lady? Yeah. To read that is also the same guy that, you know, got thug like tatted on his chest. <laughs> so, like, this is the duality and the tapestry within our own community that probably always has existed. But as. Uh, but that's also been lost, too, when you think about it. Hmm. I mean, like, so there's a book called The Soul of Hip Hop. It's by uh, Daniel White Hodge. Um, can't remember where he went to school, but. Uh, Soul Hip Hop, I've got a bunch of copies of this book. I can give you both one. Uh, okay. But he he talks about, you know, the lyrics, mm-hmm. you know, for, for all these hip hop artists that came out uh, when hip hop was first a thing. And then, of course, you got into West Coast and Tupac being mm-hmm. you know, one of the biggest. And I think we've lost that in a way in terms of, you know, just the commodification of our culture. Our, I mean, our culture's always, yeah, our culture's always been commodified. Right. And you'll hear conversations go around today, like, man. This hip hop, you know, this isn't hip hop anymore. Hip hop doesn't exist anymore. This is all terrible, and and you'll see it through the, and I don't want to talk about like toxic masculinity or stuff or, or anything like that, um, but you do see the demasculinization of uh, the black male through current hip hop, where you will see, you know, your hip hop artists now they're they're wearing makeup and putting on dresses and things like that, and you know, however you want to live your life, that's fine, but there was something about hey, hard things have happened to me. That's where my music is coming from. Mm-hmm. And now uh, hip-hop doesn't carry the same message or carry the same weight. The number one consumers of hip-hop music today and bu- uh, buyers of, uh, of hip-hop music are, are white suburban kids. I would say and that's so, been that probably for like, the white suburban kids have been the number one buyers of all black music for forever. Yeah. So, hip, But hip-hop enjoyed... A time where it wasn't. It was predominantly like when jazz came out. Uh, the reason why I think white people immediately liked jazz is because it became very popular during Prohibition. Mm-hmm. It was in all those, you know, the the, the, same, the same reason like yeah. before Prohibition, women and men didn't drink together, and then it became illegal. And it's like, okay, well, let's not have separate clubs for us when we're doing something illegal. Let's all do it together. <laughs> That's when jazz took off, and so I think white people have always liked jazz in some way, shape, or form. Elvis Presley comes along. Robs you know black music from the you know from the African American church and his moves and everything like that. Okay, fine. Um, but hip hop, when it came along, was decidedly black and stayed decidedly black for a long time. You didn't see people react to jazz the way that they reacted to to hip hop. Um, and it spoke truth to power. But um, with it, you know, as an artist uh, myself, like I, I think that it's it's also like you know as you as what we're what we're against and what we're looking to because what. What I see from the idea of black liberation is uh, uh, equality and human rights and a balance because I don't believe in scarcity. I think that uh, our society is abundant enough for everyone to have what they need. But in this, as you look through the lens of, uh, you know, the lens of Easy e created the lens of 50 Cent and the lens of 50 Cent creates 21 Savage. So this is like trickling down and trickling down and trickling down and trickling down, but still on it, 21 Savage is making reference to Martin Luther King in his own way. Like, I, I don't think he's in the studio on the pulse of what I should be doing, but what's destructive to that listener of 21 Savage, that the black kid that's listening to him, 
it it's taking on a new form. It's taking on a new face. It's taking on um, a, a new challenge. And I would even say, even for what would make uh, people respond to a pastor, that the, the mega church, mm-hmm. quote unquote, can be argued as just as destructive as where hip hop is, because now it, it's like you know the the whole concept of uh, like let's see, let's look at uh, you said Second Ebenezer. Bishop Venn and, and all of the work he was doing right at not not that far from here, right in the heart of the North End, uh, when when his church was basically the size of, the size of this uh, of this space itself, uh, more impactful, um, but you know due to other uh, things and, and what happened. Now he has a church where I can only imagine what that overhead is, so it may shackle the type of moves he can make and what he can uh, make stances on, but. I met him and he had a, he had a barber come into his office to cut his hair yeah. right? because he has to. So but, yeah, you can't make all the same moves that you do as a small pastor. So yeah, maybe he's locked in, but he's but got he more power. But he was touching too, so. the people right. Right. in a more organic way that led to people saying, wow, we got to put this on a bigger stage. And now it's on a bigger stage and it touches less people. So it's like the impact has completely transitioned. Right. And as that impact has transitioned, it changes the opportunities for those kids right now in the North End that need that. Right, right. And and I think that that is the disconnect that that I continually grapple with 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 the Black Church in particular. The very scenario that you set up, when the pastor is by virtue of necessity, um, let's just mm-hmm. offer grace in that capacity. It's it's necessary for the their accessibility to be different if they are part of a mega institution mm-hmm. versus part of a neighborhood church, uh, when that occurs, then that soul connection, that moral compass that our community and our own humanity continue to need to have, there's a there's a, a separation there. Mm-hmm. If I can't talk to my pastor, if I can't reach out and, and uh, have my pastor touch my shoulder and comfort me when my mama's sick or my child is in jail or whatever the case might be, then I and not have that connection really puts our community in, in its own turmoil, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so I was very intentional about asking you, who do you see as that kind of moral compass leader with an expectation that you would not be able to answer the question? Well, the, re- <laughs> the reason why I can't answer the question is, well, if we're, if we're talking about specifically churches, um, I have a different understanding of what a pastor is supposed to be and do. Uh, a Vance, it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting when you have a mega church, right? So... Uh, if, uh, it's, it, it's, it's Van, right? It's, yes. it's, it's, it's Pastor V-A-N, right? Van. So yeah. Pastor Van. Bishop Van. Bishop Van. Bishop Bishop Because he's a pastor to pastors. Mm-hmm. And so a pastor at a, le- a level that he's gotten to is different than a pastor who's hired into that. Yeah. Okay, so in white evangelical large churches, so I went to a church called Woodside. Woodside yeah. out in Troy. And they now have one, and they have two locations in Detroit as well, but they've got like 14 different campuses. Mm-hmm. So the, the main pastor's name is Doug Schmidt, right? Doug Schmidt is hired into that church to be a pastor to pastors, right? That's what his job is. And then so he's preaching to them. Obviously, he's preaching on Sundays as well to the large congregation, but his role is to pastor those other pastors, and then they pastor everybody else. And so I think that that's a reality that a megachurch pastor is going to deal with. That's the role they're in. And so if I were going to talk about who the leaders are, I would have to get the names of the small church pastors because the small church pastors are the ones who are able to touch 
the the community at large, whereas a, a megachurch pastor just by definition doesn't have that ability anymore. You know, and and that's just I, how they're designed. Yeah, I kind of feel compelled to push back uh, a little mm-hmm. on that, and that that might be kind of the uh, the the structure or or the the system in place behind the scenes, but I dare say that most of the congregants that show up on Sunday morning are not expecting their pastor to be a pastor of pastors. Right, they see the pastor as their pastor. They see the pastor right. as their pastor. Absolutely. And, and so my critique is only that when we are in a space in, in this contemporary society that we are, are living in where there are a lot of issues that are plaguing us the same way there were issues in the 40s, 50s, 60s, before and after, right? And yet that that person or those persons that touched us that really stood as a, in a separate kind of way to give us a sense of where to aspire to uh, is harder to come by now than it was then and so in our evolution of becoming more sophisticated be it in how we worship in the structure of our institutions our spiritual institutions or how we do business have we now created such a gap and a disconnect that we don't have we don't have those 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 visuals those individuals that that our young people can look at and say this is what i aspire to and that's partially why we are seeing the celebrityism that is consumed our young people to such a degree where they need to look at somebody and aspire to something even if the these superstars are superstars by virtue of being superstars and really not bringing anything else right. to the table you're famous for being famous famous yeah. for being famous the, yeah the kim kardashian exactly yeah absolutely so, yeah yes. I, I i definitely agree with that i mean there's i do sometimes uh wonder about the black church in general just because how like African Methodist Episcopalian Church in America was created because black people were expelled right. from, from white churches, right? And so we developed the black community and the white community, both Christian, you know, consider themselves Christian communities, uh, but they're developing along different theological trajectories. They're dealing with different issues. You've got a pastor out in Troy, Doug Schmidt, who's going to be talking to, you know, talking to soccer moms, Right. Uh, one single income home because dad makes $450,000 a year, right? We built a $20 million youth wing that we didn't need, okay? Because we have that kind of money. Um, and then you've got a Pastor Van or a, or a, a Bishop Keith Butler or whoever. I'm just saying Butler because that's the church my mom goes to. That's the only reason I know who he is. Um, so you, you've got this development along different trajectories, but I think that White churches have had mega church. Uh, white evangelical churches have had mega churches far longer than black churches, mm-hmm. and so things that I think that they've adapted to, for better or worse, um, don't necessarily play well, or we haven't had the time to adapt to them. Case in point, again, pastor to pastors, it's a very CEO corporate look mm-hmm. at church. Yes, that's mm-hmm. the way it runs Monday through Friday, but the church at that point, I don't think anybody at a Woodside in Troy is under the illusion that, yeah, Doug is the senior pastor of this church, but if I call on Monday, I'm going to be able to talk to that guy. They've gotten with the program that they're going to get some other guy, mm-hmm. right? Because Doug is doing everything else. So I don't think that the black church has been set up that way mm-hmm. for a long time. So now as we're getting more and more large black churches, 
adapting to that is difficult. Whether we whether we should adapt to that or not uh, is a whole other question. Mm. Um, whether the white church should have adapted to that or not is a whole other uh, question. Uh, but the fact is they have adapted to it because they've had a longer time to adapt to it. Uh, question is what's happening within the black church in terms of large churches. But I didn't think we'd be going here today. This has been a rich conversation and it kind of brings us to a wrap. Um, man, very rich conversation. Uh, I, I like the opening. I like this inaugural episode. You're going to get more uh, thought processes. It was good to pick Calvin's brain and, 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 and poke in there as, uh, as he, he brushed up a lot on uh, his thought process on theology <laughs> and leadership. Yeah, I don't get, I don't get the, the black I don't community. Get the dust the cobwebs off of that very often. I'm like, ooh, great. Exactly. So, um, so we talked about that. We'll definitely have you back as uh, we're going to keep this thing rolling with Black Coffee. Uh, do you have any information to give to people? How do they connect with you? Yeah, uh, um, a couple things, a couple ways you can connect with me. Of course, I have my, my tour company, which you were talking about, uh, which is 7.2 Tours. Uh, you can check that out, 72tours.com. All one word, all spelled out. Uh, and then also I do a, a radio show, a radio show called Leading Questions with Calvin Moore, where we're always talking about mm -hmm. uh, different issues, uh, race, religion, sex, dating, uh, you name it, you know, immigration reform, we're talking about it. Uh, you can find that at leadingquestions.net, mm -hmm. uh, where I think that 64, 65 episodes at this point. So, yeah. Um, and you, yeah. you got us coming up. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, doing, we're doing a, we're doing a four week series, uh, called, uh, Black in America. We're looking at, uh, black faith, black, uh, family, black economic self-determination, and then black politics and protest as well. So yeah, it's going to be a, mm -hmm. it's going to be an interesting series. Yeah, no, you don't have a sticking it to the man episode. No, no, no. Here's the thing: my show's, my show's controversial. So a few weeks later, I'm doing an episode called "White in America," and I'm going to be asking all white people, you know, their thoughts on on race relations and, and things like that too. So kind of get the other uh, point of view as well. So uh, let it not be said that uh, we're not controversial, but we also like to get more than one perspective on things. So, thank you, thank you. Yeah. No problem. So, so we're going to keep this thing rolling. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Um, and then, Frida, you want to give any information to the people? So uh, we are going to be doing this on a weekly basis. And if you want to learn more about uh, the Frederick D. Sampson Foundation or my father, check out fgsfoundation.org. It's uh, the website that we'll be continuing to build upon. But just stay tuned. We've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. And thank you, Calvin. It's been really very cool thank chatting you. with you. Absolute pleasure being here. Yep. DetroitIsDifferent.com. Thank you.